James is near the end of your, your New Testament, although it's uh, probably the earliest written, earliest letter that was written in our New Testament canon. If you if you've had a chance to to be to read through the book of James, uh, again as as I said two weeks ago during the introduction, it's very hard to categorize James uh, in terms of overall theme. Uh, you know, I know Dan and I talked. I think it was last week, and, he, and he, you know what struck him reading James was the the proverbial nature of James that it, that that. This really is, I guess, what we would call kind of a New Testament wisdom literature. In fact, you're going to see that this morning as we turn to Proverbs. How many times what James says, you can turn, you can turn to Proverbs and see that very thing being taught in Proverbs. So it is, it is very much uh, uh, dependent upon, not dependent upon, but characterized by uh, you know, wisdom literature or, or proverbial sayings. But it's also... Again, it's hard to categorize, but it's also very deeply um, uh, influenced by the law, as, again, as we'll see this morning. Uh, this is something that a lot of people maybe don't pick up on or, or don't realize about the book of James, but that he does rely and draw upon the Old Testament law uh, throughout his book. If you've had an opportunity to, to look at various outlines, attempts to outline the book of James, they're all over the place. Um, and again, that, that, that's very similar. That, that, that's very characteristic of Proverbs. Proverbs, they're not, they're not long, uh, consistent uh, associations, but more of a string of pearls, I guess, that, that are strung together. And that's certainly the book of James. And then that will be very clear this morning as well. Uh, because at certain, regardless of what you see as an, as an overall theme or a unifying theme of the book of James, you're going to run into texts that don't, just, just don't seem to quite fit, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and, and I think that that is going to be the case this morning. Um, again, from, from our standpoint on Sundays, my approach has been the, the theme that I, that I see uh, as an umbrella theme, I guess, is, is looking at the nature of true faith. All of these things, I think, would be uh, characteristic of true faith. Um, and and as, if you've been with us, you know that James's original audience was experiencing uh, significant trials. Um, no doubt, um, in, in a lot of uh, burden, uh, situations of oppression and burden, uh, and very difficult times for them for a host of reasons. But also, uh, pretty significant internal temptations, probably arising uh, in, to a large extent from the trials that they were facing. Uh, as you know, when, when we face trials and in, in, in intense trials, yeah, sometimes we don't respond appropriately. Um, and, and so James has to remind them, how, how are we to respond to trials? Uh, we, we, we saw that we respond to trials with joy, uh, not because of the trial itself, but because of what the trial is going to produce in our lives. And that in the midst of, sometimes trials are just overwhelming. I mean, uh, they, they just, seem, it just seem like you can't go on. Uh, we need to cultivate a, a heart of joy knowing that God is, is not a wasteful God. He uses those to, uh, to bring about his purposes in our lives to make us mature and complete so that when we face our next trial, we can face it a little better than uh, gloom, despair, and agony on me. Um, 
In our text today, I, I want us to, to look at how, um, how well, what, what's the practice, I guess I should say. What, how does true faith practice? What's the practice of true faith? Now, that word practice has, you know, the semantic range. There's a lot of different meanings for practice. Well, what, what's, what's one way we can define practice? His audience participation. Prepar- okay, preparation for? When you... A pattern of behavior, habit, application, good. Yeah, there are, as you can see, there are a lot of different ways we use this word practice. One is a re- repeated efforts to master a skill. In, in the, brief, the brief time that uh, Dan Light was trying to teach me how to play the piano, I, uh, I had to practice. And I had to repeat it, I had to practice. I had to re- just repeated efforts to master a skill. And in my case, there were repeated efforts, but there was never a mastery of the skill. So, uh, but that's how we use pra- we practice something. It's a repeated effort to master something. Another w- way is more of a noun, where it's a, a professional vac- vocation, right? We, he has his own practice. It, it, typically, it's more of a, more professionally oriented. Um, but number third is, is, is number three, as many of you pointed out that which is a habitual or customary performance. It's a normal practice or standard practice. In other words, this is something that is normal and customary uh, performance. That's the sense in which uh, I want us to look at verses 19, chapter 1, verses 19 through 27, the practice of faith. What is the habitual or customary performance of true faith? Let's read the entire uh, passage, and then we'll come back and look at it uh, a little more closely. You know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Not everyone, now everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For man's anger does not bring about the righteousness of God. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not just hearers who deceive themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. And once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who has looked intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, And has continued in it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an active doer, this person will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this person's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Sometimes, there, there, well, most of the places of the Bible, the, the, the theology and the doctrine is so dense that it, that it's, it takes a great deal of unpacking. Uh, I always bring up Paul, for instance. You know, I mean, some of Paul's letters, Romans and Ephesians, you know, really you could take one verse and, and preach six weeks on it, and there are a lot of pastors who do that. I think that's overkill, but that's how dense sometimes uh, theology and doctrine is in some of, some of Paul's letters and, and even some of the other letters in the New Testament. 
James is not like that. I'm, I'm not saying that there's no doctrine involved. I'm not saying that there's no theology involved. But it's not real dense. It is very, very practical. And most of the meaning is found on the surface. You don't have to do a lot of digging, you know, to get the meaning from James because the nature of it is just very, very practical. And so this morning as we go through this, um, it, it just seems like, uh, again, sometimes I, it seems like overkill because when it says quick to hear, you don't need a lot of exegesis to understand what that means. Um, but that has, ne- has never stopped me in the past, so we'll, we'll, we'll do it anyway. Uh, the interpretive question really for this section is, is this section related solely to God's word or is it just, these are just general truths? Um, in other words, verse 19, you know this, not everyone should be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Is he talking about as that relates to God's word or as, as it relates to either the reading of God's word, which would have been probably not predominant for them because most of the time they heard that, that they were engaged God's word. It was, it was they, someone would read it to them. It was a letter that Paul sent, in this case James wrote, and someone would read it to the congregation. So one way we could look at, say, verse 19 is that as they are, as they hear God's word, they need to be slow or quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Well, well, obviously, certainly it would apply to that. I, I think it's not limited to that. So, so just to let you know, I'm, I'm taking this more generally and not just limited to when they heard or when they when they read God's word um, again you you will find probably others who who take uh, these three admonitions quick to hear slow to speak and slow to anger as being specifically related and only related to the proclamation or the reading of God's word I, and I and while it, I certainly would, would apply to that I don't think it's limited to that so what is the first thing that that true faith practices I think that true faith practices restraint. Restraint. Verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Not everyone must be quick to hear, but they must be slow to speak and slow to anger. Now, what does it mean to be quick to hear? Uh, It means to be ready. It means to be eager. It means that, that basically our first instinct is to listen, not speak. In, in, in all kinds of contexts, um, and, and again, I am really, uh, I am really bad at this. Um, I, I, uh, what, 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 let's say I'm in a conversation and someone's talking. Um, oftentimes, I'm formulating my response while they're still talking, or what they have said is, has sparked something uh, uh, in, 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 that, that I thought of that I want to share. And I want to be part of the conversation. And so I kind of sh- shut down my, my ears. And I'm, I want to jump in and, and speak. If anybody's been to the Brooks family dinner, any dinner of the Brooks family at the table, poor Jason, by the way, he had to learn this. I, I finally told him, said, Jason, man, if you don't jump in, you ain't getting in. You're, you're, you better jump in. That's not all good. <laughs> That's not all good. I, quite frankly, in our church, for the most part, those of you who uh, tend to be more reserved, and maybe uh, are, are, th- this comes very naturally to you. You know, you're, you're, you're very uh, quick to hear. Um, 
bless your hearts. Sometimes I'm, I'm afraid maybe we steamroll you. And uh, so, so th- this is what he's saying. He's saying, you know what, just relax. Uh, don't be so eager to jump in and, and share and, and, and give advice. This is something that I, quite frankly, that I'd say to, I have to say to Vicki sometimes. She loves to micromanage me. And every now, I'm not saying I love her immensely. Uh, and she'd be the first one to tell you this is, in fact, what she does. She micromanages. Good Lord, I, I don't know how I get dressed in the morning without her. Um, sometimes I just need her to be quiet and, and be quick to hear, not quick to speak. Not hear, not speak, but listen. The old saying is, God gave us what? Two ears and one mouth. Again, turn with me, put a marker here, and turn with me to Proverbs chapter 17. Again, you'll see the, the, the proverbial nature of James. This, In fact, verse 19 sounds something straight out of Proverbs. Proverbs 17, verse 28. And, and by the way, the, the, the Proverbs talk a lot about speech and talking and listening. 1728, even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. Again, be quick to hear. This is going to require, or this requires patience. And it requires humility. <laughs> um, there are some people who who have a story for everything. Someone's sharing a story. You know, I have a story. Um, how many of you? How many of you are uh, uh, fans of Monty Python? They're all gone. Um, they have this skit. And there's these four, four or five Welshmen. Are they Welshmen, Mitch? They're kind of hacked at Cockney or what do you call them? Anyway, they're, they're these British guys. And, and one guy's they're, they're, you know, they're talking and they're visiting. One, one guy makes a mention. He said, you know, and I grew up, we didn't, we didn't. Someone said something. He goes, we grew up, we didn't have running water. You know, we, we, we had to go out to a well. And he goes, so you had a well? Luxury. And, and, and so what happens is they try to one-upsmanship each other on how bad they had it. And they ended up with a guy saying, you had a roof? We didn't have a roof. We lived in a shoebox in the middle of the road. And, uh, and, and it's, it's, it's this, this, this notion to one-upmanship or, or to, and even in with good motives to share your story or to share your, it's sometimes it's good just to be quick to listen. Let others share uh, and not always be jumping in. And again, I'm, I'm preaching to myself. This is going to require patience. It requires humility. Um, uh, I, I need to practice this uh, when it comes to my jokes, even though they are, I always bring my A game when it comes to humor. Uh, but I, I need to be quick, quick to hear. And number two, slow to speak. That, that, that's the opposite side of it, right? He says, slow to speak. This means not anxious, not, hes- or, or not prompted, not being in haste to speak. Now, he's going to go into much more detail on this in chapter three. And again, the Proverbs talk a lot about this. 
So the ghost, it goes to quick to hear but slow to speak, to slow down and learn to hold our tongues. This really uh, is, is applied in, quite frankly, what we're going through in our world today. It's very easy to speak, um, well, just to speak inappropriately. And what I mean by inappropriately is we need to get into habit of not always talking about all the bad things that are going on. Uh, I met with a, a good friend of mine this week from Colorado Springs. We grew up together. And, and I have cut myself off. I don't, and Vicki knows she doesn't tell me anything about what's going on. And uh, that's all he had to say. He's always talking about it. So I don't want to hear that. <laughs> I don't want to hear that. And, and, and this, reply, this applies, too, to reckless or rash words. How often do we speak rashly? And, and once, have you ever said something to someone, and as soon as the words leave your mouth, you want to go, ah, you know, you know, grab them and bring them back? Uh, again, uh, Proverbs chapter 12. Proverbs chapter 12 about being slow to speak. And this, this is especially with reckless words, with rash words. Proverbs 12:18 There is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword. Does anybody have the NIV this morning? No. Uh, Pat, would you please read verse 18? Yeah. Reckless words pierce, thank you by the way. Reckless words pierce like a sword. But what? The second part, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Um, slow to speak, especially when it comes to reckless and rash words. Uh, David, you'll like this. Ecclesiastes 5.2. Ecclesiastes uh, will always hold a dear a near and dear place in many of our hearts as we attempted to go through it in a home group one time. Ecclesiastes 5.2 Do not be quick with your mouth or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. That's, 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 a, that's a tall order for some of us. Quick to hear, slow to speak. And then number three, he says, slow to anger. Slow to anger. Really, uh, uh, the, the word probably, I feel more comfortable that translated wrath. The, the word used here is a sudden outburst. Uh, typically, we use anger as more of a brooding uh, emotion. You know, I'm just, I'm just in an angry mood, whereas wrath is something that uh, is an outward expression or a sudden outward expression of, of that inward anger. He says, slow to wrath, not eager. Uh, now, notice what he, he does not say. He doesn't say what? He doesn't say never get angry. He says, be slow to, be slow to get angry. Don't rush uh, into anger. He doesn't say never get angry. He says, be slow to anger, and he gives us a reason. 
the reason we are to slow to anger, verse 20, is that for the anger of man, literally, the anger of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. Now, there, these are two genitives. What does it mean, the anger of man? What's that? Man, yeah, and, and a lot of our translation, the anger expressed by us. When we express anger, typically it does not produce the second genitive, which is the righteousness of God. Is that the righteousness that God gives? Is it the righteousness towards God? In what sense does he mean righteousness of God? Again, I think the NIV hits on this. It says the righteousness that God requires. In other words, the righteous state that he requires for us, anger does not contribute to that usually in any way. In fact, quite the opposite. Slow to anger. Again, it doesn't mean that we never get angry, but just understanding that most of the time when we get angry, it, one of two things is we're, we're angry for the wrong reasons. Um, usually when we get angry, it's because of pride. That's a biggie. Um, or a, 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 someone has uh, violated my sense of, of, of rights that I have. You know, I get angry when someone cuts me off in traffic. I had a right to that lane, and they, they, they took it from me. And I get angry. Um, impatience. We, we get angry when, because we are impatient. Um, so, so often or most of the time, our expressions of anger do not contribute to the righteousness that God wants for us because we, are, we, are, we get angry for the wrong reasons. And or, number two, we express it in the wrong way. We express it in the wrong way. Again, this is where this word is instructive. Wrath. Uh, he says, don't fly off the handle. Uh, this goes back to the speech. Be quick to hear, slow to speak. Don't speak rash, reckless, unkind words. Because this does not in any way contribute to the righteousness that God has for us or wants for us. So true faith practices restraint, restraint in our speech particularly, uh, but also uh, restraint in terms of our emotions, particularly anger. But it would not simply be limited to anger. True faith uh, exercises restraint in all of our emotions. I would, I would maybe exclude joy and happiness. I don't know that he'd say, hey, let's keep that down. Uh, but true faith exercises restraint. Number two, true faith practices the word. Look with me at verse 21. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Now, James, a uh, little known fact, I feel like Cliff Clavin right now, little known fact, James, of all the New Testament books, has the highest form of Greek there is. In other words, it is very, very similar to what we call classical Greek. When I was in, when I was in college, I took a, I took a, a, a class in classical, or course in classical Greek. We learned classical Greek. It's much more difficult than Koine Greek, what we call biblical Greek or Koine Greek. It'd be like the difference of, uh, oh, what they, would, what they would speak in Great Britain, as a, English in Great Britain as opposed to English in Hobbes um, or Midland or Odessa. Uh, any of you familiar with those towns? It, 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 it is it, high grammar, very 
very uh, a lot of hapax legomenon, a lot of words only used in that book. Very difficult Greek. Um, and, and this is one case of that. Uh, the main verb doesn't come until the very end, almost the very end of this verse. He, he says again, therefore, ridding, R-I-D-D-I-N-G. What, now, in most, most of the time in English translations, when you, say, when you see a word with I-N-G, I-N-G, it is a participle. A participle is not a main idea. A participle modifies the main idea. The main verb is the main idea. You see, the, this is all just extra that you get on Sunday mornings. So ridding yourselves is not the main idea. So he says, therefore, ridding yourselves of all filthiness and all that remains of, wilk- of wickedness in humility. Here's the main idea. Receive the word implanted. And even that's bad English. What would we say? Receive the implanted word. <laughs> so the main idea is, he says, I want you to receive the word implanted. That's, that's his main idea. The question is, what does he mean by, by word implanted? Um, well, we have to go elsewhere. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 3. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope reserved for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, here it is, the gospel, the word, which has come to you just as in all the world also, here it is, it is bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard it, and understood the grace of God in truth. In other words, he's, there is a, there's an inherent power of the word to become implanted in our soul and to grow and to increase and to, and to be fruitful. First uh, Peter 2.1 Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of our Lord. In other words, the the word is already inside us. And we we think about the word, we think about the gospel, we think about um, not just the, the, the simple message of salvation, but all of scripture is the gospel, all of scripture is the word has been implanted in us, and now he's simply saying, um, I want you to receive that. Now, what does he mean by receive? Well, we don't receive it in the sense of getting it because we already have it. It's already been, he says, implanted in us. But I think that the sense of receiving is to allow it to do its work. In other words, there, is a, uh, there seems to be a, a very real connection between my conduct and the effectiveness in the word that God has is, is implanted in me. We see it in, in James. We just saw it in First Peter. There seems to be this connection, some kind of connection 
between the effectiveness of God's word in my life is in direct proportion or certainly affected by my conduct. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If I'm out living uh, an unholy, unrighteous life, it's going to be awfully hard to come to the word of God and have it produce any kind of uh, effect in our lives. In fact, that's why he says um, that the main idea is to receive the word of God and then ridding is the participle. Go back to James. This is the means by which we are to receive it. The means by which we receive the word of God is we need to rid ourselves of two things. He says filthiness. There are some words that just fit what they represent. Filthy. If I was to say that much of what is around me in my world, I would say it's just filth. Most of what's on our TVs is filth. I'm sounding more and more like an independent fundamentalist Baptist, don't I? But it is. It's filthy. It's absolutely filthy. I love this word, filthiness. Um, again, this is the only place that this word is found in the New Testament. So it's, it's hard or it's harder um, to, to, to precisely know what he's talking about here. But it's probably anything that's foul, that's offensive, that's morally impure. Again, don't you see this relationship between receiving the word that's implanted in us and our conduct and how we live our lives. He's saying, rid yourselves of all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. When we come to know Christ, there is a, a position, positionally we are blameless and, and, and perfect in, in, in God's eyes because of Christ. And, and that's our position. But experientially, we still have evil and filthiness and wickedness through sanctification that, that gradually goes away and is transformed. Um, and ironically, when I was studying this week, I got to thinking of car washes. I got to think of a car wash. How many of you, you get a car and you go wash it and you never wash it again? I've seen, yeah. <laughs> Rachel goes, yes. I've seen your car, you're right now. Uh, what, what do we do with our cars? What should we, Dan, what should we be doing with our cars? repeatedly go down to Colorado Springs what's that get out there and watch yeah so yeah especially with brush um so so this week my car was filthy again there's that word it was filthy so I took it to the car wash I usually go through the automatic because I'm just I tend to be a little on the lazy side but this time I thought you know I'm going to do it by hand because it was really bad and so I, you know, I, I do it all around. And um, quick story, uh, the, the car wash that we go to by our home, I, it, you can do cards now. Of course, everything's by cards. So I put my card in, and I wash my car, car you know, wash my car, and I'm, I'm, I'm done. And, and it won't turn off. And, and you know, the, 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 the dollar amount's just clicking, you know. And I can't turn it off. And I... I said, what, is it going to go to $2,000? I mean, do I drive off? And So I called the number, and I told Dan I hate being that guy, but I was that guy. I called the number. I said, yeah, and he, someone answered right away, very nice. I said, yeah, I'm, you know, it's your car wash, and I'm in one of the self-serve bays, and it won't, how do I turn it off? It won't turn off. <laughs> he said, okay, uh, you know the screen? He said, you see the screen, right? And I go, yeah. And he goes, right below the screen, there's a big red button. That says stop. <laughs> Got it. You feel you feel his pain, right? 
Um, anyway, my point is, my car looked really nice. Not as nice as, as, as Dan's car was. By the way, it's, it's fabulous, no doubt about it. But I went home, and after it dried, I noticed there was some streaking, you know, of the stuff that had kind of, that I hadn't got it all off. I hadn't got it all off. There was still some junk on it. It was a lot better than when, better when I, after I washed it, but there was still some, I think that's the sense of it in our Christian lives, that, yeah, when we come to know Christ, a lot of the filth and a lot of the wickedness is washed off of us and washed clean, and we are obviously positionally perfect before him. But sanctification is that repeated washing. We've got to go through this, the cycle, uh, and, and, and all that remains of wickedness, we need to keep washing and keep washing, and, and, and ultimately, uh, when, we, when we're in glory, it'll all be gone. But he's saying this is how we practice the word. This is how we receive the word is we've got to continually be ridding ourselves of all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. Again, this relationship between our conduct and and the the effectiveness in the word in our life. I I read in in 1 Peter, if we turn to 1 Peter 3, 7, he talks to husbands and he says, you know, treat your wives with gentleness um, as, uh, because otherwise your prayers will be hindered. Isn't that interesting? So it leads me to believe that there, are some, there is some conduct that, that will affect, affect my prayers. Perhaps this is one of those. We receive the implanted word. And number two, we practice the word by Practicing the word. We, we do it. The old Nike uh, slogan, just do it. That's what James is saying in verse 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word. Now, that, that contrast, but, is, seems awkward, doesn't it? Um, he just got through saying, in humility, receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves. The, the but doesn't fit. Careful. Most, uh, most people believe that this is, was probably a, a, a wisdom saying that, that James was in, in, essence, in, in effect quoting directly. So the, the, the contrast doesn't fit in this context, but in the original context would have fit. But nevertheless, the point is, he's saying, don't just hear it. In our case, don't just read it, just, but also do it. It's real simple. This is not a lot of difficult exegesis in these verses. He's simply saying, don't be like the person who looks at themselves in the mirror. He says, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. And once he's looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Don't be like that. He says, but the one who has looked intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, I take that to be the, the law of God that has now been transformed by uh, the cross of Christ, that it, it is now something that I am able to keep. It is now something that, well, it never was anything that would justify me. Now that I've been justified, he has now written his law on my heart. And, and, and it is not a burden. In fact, he calls it the perfect law, the law of freedom, that I can now do it. We're not antinomian. We're not saying that, like some, that the Old Testament is, uh, is null and void and obsolete. The Old Covenant is obsolete. Hebrews tells us that. But we, again, we, we distinguish between the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, and particularly the law. 
So he says, listen, um, we, we are still bound by, we are still bound to the law. We, we are bound to do it. But now we are able to do it, not in our own efforts, but because of the indwelling spirit in our lives. Now, in fact, we can keep the Ten Commandments. We are able to. We often do not, but we are now able to. He says, do it. Just do it. Anyone, he says, who does this will be blessed in what he does. Now, again, that's, that sounds very much like a, like a proverb. Does it mean that every, I always do the right thing? Good things will happen to me? No. But before God, in God's sight, in terms of my relationship with God, I'll be blessed. Finally, thank you for your patience. True faith practices the word, but finally, true faith practices true religion. Verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, but but deceives his own heart, this person's religion is worthless. He talks about true religion is a bridled tongue. And religion has gotten a bad rap in our world today, folks. You know, how many times you say, I'm not about religion. Christianity is not a religion. It's about a relationship. Is that true? Well, partly. It is about a relationship. But it is also a religion. Uh, and I understand, I think, what they're saying. When we use a religion, we, we use it in a pejorative sense that that, 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 uh, that, that form of church that is... Uh, that is uh, that's hard. That's lifeless. That is legalistic. Um, but 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 it's okay to say religion. That there are good. There is good. There are good forms of religion and bad forms of religion. Let's not throw the baby out with the proverbial bathwater. He says true religion is uh, engages a, is a bridal tongue. Anybody know what a bridal is? Anybody? Any ranchers, horse people in here? Yeah. No. Uh, believe it or not, there was a, we lived we used to live in Wyoming. We owned a we owned horses. I know I hated riding horses. They knew. Um, my my niece uh, always said, "You just need to let they just need to let them know who's boss." I said, "Oh, they know. They know who's boss." An animal that large. I've had some very bad experiences with horses, but I do know something about horses. I know that surprises you. I don't know what a what's a bridle. See, obviously you're city folk over here. A, a, a bridle is, is comprised of, there's three main parts. There's the part that goes around the head. It, it, it's called a head stall. And then there's the reins. And then there is the bit. So, um, take that back to Hawaii with you. Um, so he's saying bridle. It's, it, it, the bridle is the whole the whole. The whole package, it's the head stall, it's, it's, it's the bit in the horse's mouth, and it, and it in, involves the reins. And, and what does he say, and, and what's, what's the implication of this metaphor to bridle? Control. A, a, a bridle controls the horse. In fact, again, he's going to talk about this very specifically in chapter 3, that we can take a horse wherever we want him or her to go um, because the bridle and the, Brit, the, the bit uh, controls them, it restrains them, it curbs them, it can, all of these things. He said true religion, again, bridles the tongue and, and, and is repeated emphasis on how we use our tongues. But number two is he says a true, true religion encompasses a compassionate heart. True religion has a 
compassionate heart. Uh, Look with me at verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Do you think it's limited to that? Why does he see orphans and widows? These are the the most vulnerable and defenseless among us. And when he says to visit them, does he, does he mean, you know, once a week go down to the old folks' home, say, howdy, y'all, play a few songs. No, that, that's great. That's good. And, and well, we can't do it now. Uh, uh, no, that, that word visit has, has more of, of a minister to, uh, of to attend to. When God visits his people, he attends to his, to, to, to his people. He defends his people. Um, and this is what I mean by the law. Oh, man. Thank you for your patience. If, if you're getting bored, feel free just to leave. Um, Deuteronomy. I'm almost done, though. Promise. I promise. Deuteronomy chapter 10. This is a predominant theme in the law. And again, this is where James is drawing on the law. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. For the sake of time, I'm just going to go. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who does not show partiality, and James is going to talk about that in chapter 2, by the way, nor, do, nor, do, nor take a bribe. He, execute, he executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the stranger by giving him food and clothing. Isn't it interesting? The orphan and the widow. God is concerned about the orphan and the widow. God is concerned about those who are the most defenseless and vulnerable in our world. Anybody think of modern-day contemporary example? What would you add to that list? Unborn babies, perhaps? Turn to Deuteronomy 24. Go down over to chapter 24. Twenty-four seventeen. You shall not pervert the justice due a stranger or an orphan, nor seize a widow's garment as a pledge. But you are to remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I'm commanding you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you are not to go back to get it. It shall belong to the stranger. It shall belong to the orphan and to the widow in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives off your olive tree, you are not to search through the branches again that shall be left for the stranger, the orphan, or for the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you're not to go over it again. There shall be, that shall be left for the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I'm commanding you to do this very thing. When he says I, the true religion is visiting the orphans and widows, it's not just going to say hi to them. It's not simply singing a song and telling them a great joke. It is attending to them. It is defending them. It is providing for them. This is one of the reasons we're so excited about Mavuna Village. It, it, it is... It is very at the heart, it is at the core of God's heart um, of defending and providing and attending to those who are most vulnerable in our world. And finally, a spotless life. True religion is a spotless life. And James, he talks, uh, he concludes this section by saying, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. What a, what a great description, unstained. What is the implication of the nature of the world by this phrase. What's the nature of our world in terms of its impact upon us? It's, it's 
dirty. It, it stains us. It's dirty, and, it, and, it, and, and we get stained by it if we, if we let it. It's interesting. We, I had all different kinds of verses that, that, that it's unstained, undefiled. It, that this world has a defiling effect upon us. And that we need to make sure that we don't allow this world to stain us. So what does Isaiah say? He says, um, "Come to me." God says, come to me and though your sins be as scarlet, though you be stained with red juice and you can't get it out, yet I'll make it white as snow. This tells us about the threat and the effect of the, of the world in our lives, that we are to keep ourselves unstained by the world. By doing many of the things, by the way, that, that we've already talked, that James has already talked about. So, wrap up. True faith practices restraint, both restraint in speech and in our, in our emotions. True, true faith practices the word, both in terms of, uh, 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 of ridding ourselves of, of filthiness and wickedness and doing it. <laughs> Just do it, to, to practice it, to put it into practice. And third, it, true, faith, true, true, true faith practices true religion, namely a bridal tongue, a compassionate heart, and a life that is uh, stainless steel uh, that's unstained by the world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for the patience of your people. Um, and we thank you most of all for Christ who made, makes true faith possible. In and of ourselves, we could not pull this off. So, Father, as we, uh, as we go out... Um, this day, back into the world this week, I pray that we would practice our true faith, that we would practice restraint in, in all of our lives, that we would be doers of your word, and that we would practice true religion, that we would have a compassionate heart, and that we would not allow this world to spot us, to, to, to stain us, and to devile us. We thank you for Jesus, and it's his name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand and join hands?